0: Glad you could join me. I'm Scott Linden, and this is the Upland Nation podcast. Uh, Thanks for being with me, and thanks for sharing this podcast with a friend down the road. Appreciate that. Hey, we've got a great show in store for you today. Frank Jezioro joins us. Frank is, of course, a very well-known columnist for Pointing Dog Journal, kind of focusing on the deep woods and grouse, but a few other things in mind. We'll talk birds, dogs, training, and Maybe even why a new puppy is always a good idea. So Frank will be with us very soon. We'll also take you to the Upland Nation Glossary in the letter T. I have a public access suggestion for Bob White's in... Yeah, Texas. Can you believe that? It's all coming up this week on the Upland Nation podcast. A whole bunch to talk about. So um, let's get right to it. How's your week going? Uh, Mine, uh, well, it's why I moved here. I moved here because I was close to bird hunting and close to some blue ribbon trout streams finally getting back into the groove on that stuff uh did a two-day float of the deschutes river with a friend of mine dog training friend of course and um had a great time didn't catch a whole lot but saw the river in a new way we floated actually floated a stretch i've never floated before which is kind of cool this is a river that is in the middle of the freaking desert but it's a deep canyon, wide canyon, and it is so lush along the banks that it harbors all sorts of wildlife. And the trout fishing can be pretty good, too. Some incredible insect hatches and in a bit of a whitewater ride once in a while. So we had a good time. The, the highlight was, no, not catching a big fish. It was drinking coffee sitting in camp on the morning before we left and uh, watching the other side of the uh, river, man, maybe a quarter mile away, and they're on the top of the ridgeline, true wilderness, six or eight bighorn sheep. And that's not all. Within a matter of minutes, they were joined by another six or eight. And then they started moving from north to south along the ridgeline. And pretty soon you look again and there's 15 or 20 and then they're all bunched up in one green spot and they're clearly it's it's breakfast time and then after breakfast there are 30 35 of them and they just mosey on over in a single file line to about the steepest talus slope we can see from there and they just lie down and chew their cuds. have you seen that it's pretty darn cool yeah okay so I did some dog training, too, uh, with Flick. The challenge is, uh, it's a, you know, it it it's a fine point, it's a nuance, but it's where I want to be. When Flick retrieves a dead bird, I want him to treat it appropriately, with respect, not gnawing on it, not tenderizing it for me. <laughs> yeah, that works great when you're working with frozen birds or bumpers of one sort or another, but Once the excitement level is amped up, and once the birds are dry and thawed, like the real thing, and once he's had a few, he starts to tenderize them as he brings them back. So I'm experimenting. If you got any ideas on that, please let me know. But right now, what I'm figuring out is just don't give him the chance. Watch him from way out when he's bringing it back. Correct him if he starts to gnaw. And then when I bring it back and when he brings it back and he does it the right way, high value food treats. Yeah. So far, so good. Wish me luck. What are you doing these days in that world? Well, it's, you know, it's hot. Yeah, it's going to be 97 today here. Uh, And in other places as well, uh, you've got some creative solutions. Jake Takasik says he's uh, getting ready for a NAVDA test, doing a lot of swimming. Planning a few birds to keep his dog's skills sharp prior to that NAVDA test. David DeSmither is shooting. Yeah, you know, I I apologize, Rob. I know you've invited me twice. I haven't been able to make it. We'll get to the range real soon. He's also keeping his dogs in shape up here. That means uh, early in the morning and daydreaming about going hunting. And then David, good on you, helping a friend train a setter pup. Yeah, a setter. I think that means that's not David's breed of choice. Uh, George Cummins, running hunt tests. Yeah, great way to extend the season. And congratulations, by the way. I've been seeing a lot of ribbons uh, on your Facebook feed, so keep up the good work. Samson, I remember when you were this tall. Good dog. And uh, Lance Larson, like us, uh, way down there. Um, We can't do much when it's 110 degrees out. But we watch Wing Shooting USA together. Uh, we'll appreciate that. Good dog. Good owner. And speaking of that sort of thing, hey, we're on the air. Yeah, you can now watch Wing Shooting USA via the Outdoor America Network. If you got a Samsung, Samsung Smart TV, we're on all of those. We're in 110 local stations and seven regional sports networks. So... As the saying goes, check your local listings for Wing Shooting USA back on the air right now. And I've got to tell you, this was a fun project because what I got to do was cherry pick the best 13 episodes. So check them out. Seven regional sports networks, 110 local stations, 24 7 on Samsung Smart TVs and all those other services, those streaming services. So. Poke around in your television. You'll find us there. Appreciate your telling a friend or two as well. And it's all made possible thanks to the generous contributions and support of Roughland Performance Kennels, Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, and the Ringneck Nation of Huron, South Dakota. I know it sounds crazy to say public access in Texas in the same sentence, but it's true. They got some great programs. It's a little bit hard, but it's not impossible. If you're looking for quail hunting in Texas and you want to access some public ground, one of the best places to go might be the Lake Meredith National Recreation Area has less hunting pressure for quail than anything else. Now be careful out there because if it's deer season, it's a mob scene, but go after or before deer season. And you might have, well, clear sailing when it comes to other people out there. The Corps of, the, the Corps of Engineers has uh, suggested when you're out there, be careful because they flood and kind of manage that water a lot. So watch out for flooded areas, search for the weedy bottomlands, and head 60 miles north of Amarillo, as they say in the song. It's one place you won't have to lease to find Bob White's. I've been talking about the FurFeathersFriends.com initiative that I've got going. It's a somewhat annual effort to get you to show off your dog with somebody else in the field. Maybe somebody you just met, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's somebody you're trying to get back into the game, whoever it is, learn more at FurFeathersFriends.com. I, I just gave away a hunt-ready strap vest to Stephen zirkel Sign up at FurFeathersFriends.com. You might win the next one. I just got mine, by the way. It's incredible. Take a look at the vest, take a look at the other prizes, and sign up You'll be emailing me a note that tells me who you're taking this season. And I talk a lot about my pointer shotguns from Legacy Sports. They are a work of art at a price that's a thing of beauty. And speak, speaking of beauty, let's talk about their high-end gun. They call it the Lux, L-U-X. That's how you'd say it, I think, in France. But anyway, it's their high-end field over and under. It's available in 12 and 20 gauge. The usual stuff, but a Turkish grade two walnut stock and foreign. The the wood is beautiful. It's got all the usual stuff: barrel selectors, chrome lined barrels, five jokes, crisp mechanical triggers, and the receiver is embellished with a raised gold finished pair of mallards. Learn more about the looks, all the seracoded finishes, the entry level, target. And youth guns at legacysports.com/slash pointer. Well, so glad we finally got connected. You might recognize the byline, Frank jesse oro he's got a regular column in pointing dog journal also the author of at least three books uh the most recent 55 years of grouse hunter i think it's a few more years now but we'll ask him about that (laughs) he's the former director of natural resources for west virginia worked with the congressional sportsman's caucus a lot more in that area we're going to talk politics yeah, my second favorite subject, uh, plus all that really important stuff. Frank Jezioro, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast.
1: And and thank you uh, for having me, Scott. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and, and your listeners. Uh, it's great to talk to any time, to anybody that really has a passion for bird hunting, uh, bird dogs, bird guns, uh, just just hunting in general, And uh, I I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak with you today.
0: Hey, what a concept, a podcast about the stuff we like to do. Okay, well, let's do it. Uh, But but first, a little background on you. You're one of those guys, kind of like me, can't hold a regular job, I think. Um, But you've done some incredible work in the natural resources world. And then also in our you know i'll call it more literary world but what about that background of yours how do you end up getting involved with the west virginia department of natural resources
1: well it it goes back several years uh i used to shoot rifle competitively bench rest rifle shooting and uh, shot with people from oregon matter of fact it Mm. used to come but uh during that time i i won four national championships and uh, had an opportunity to meet a lot of people. One of them was Warren Page, who used to write, of course, for Fuel and Stream. Sure. And uh, back, even back then, this is I'm talking in the uh, early, early '70s. I expressed my desire to Warren. I said, Warren, I, I really enjoy writing and and talking to people, and uh, you know, I would like to start writing. Uh, about the hunting and fishing I've had an opportunity to do, which was sort of limited back then, and he gave me some good advice. He said, Frank, the time to write about hunting, fishing, shooting, guns, is when you know more than probably 70% of the people who are going to read it. And, and I think he was right. What he meant was, until you had the experience that you can talk about these things intelligently and and based on your experience, you can back up what you're saying. It's, it's best not to put it out there and find yourself uh, being branded as, uh, you know, someone who really doesn't understand. So from there, I started writing for uh, local newspapers, doing an article, a Sunday article on hunting and fishing and shooting and different things and that led to writing for one of the uh, Game and Fish magazines, West Virginia Game and Fish. Uh, from there, uh, I, I kept on writing. And after I retired from my real job, uh, now Senator Manchin became governor of West Virginia. And he knew me for several years. He knew my uh, expertise in, in hunting and fishing and shooting and guns and so he asked me to become the uh, director of the D- Division of Natural Resources in West Virginia. So I told him, yes, I, w- I would do it. I was retired about a week when he brought this proposal forward. And I told him, I said, uh, Governor, I'll, I will certainly do that. I'd like the opportunity, but I'm only going to do it for four years. He said, that's fine. Yeah. Well, I wound, up, I wound up working four years for him, six years for him. Actually, then he became senator. And I worked for the the next governor, Governor Tomlin. Anyway, I wound up working 10 years, the longest-serving director of the Division of Natural Resources in in the history of the agency.
0: Wow. But
1: during those those times, uh, Scott, we were, especially under Senator Manchin when he was governor, we were able to open up more public shooting ranges. Uh, We put sporting clay shooting in the state parks two state parks when people said well you can never do that because you can't have a gun in the state park but we did that and, and they were very successful very popular people really enjoyed, it and they still enjoy it today and we were able to purchase a lot a lot of land and open it to the public for hunting and in several things that really pertained and benefited the hunters and the fishermen of the state During that time, I started writing for Pointing Dog Journal. Uh, I think I wrote for them on their original issue, their first issue when when Dave Meisner was a co-founder of of Pointing Dog Journal, and then I've been writing for them ever since. But I've I've been blessed in being able to always have a a real job where I could uh, hunt and fish in a lot of different places and I did I've, I tell people I've really I've shot everything from garbage dump rats to grizzly bears and doll sheep in Alaska but my main passion has always been actually grouse hunting and grouse dogs and and raising bird dogs and and I've followed that for over the years and continue to do that and, and you know write about it in in the various books that you mentioned and also uh, in in the articles for pointing dogs
0: well, what is it about that whole game, uh, the 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 grouse hunting game in particular, but just working with dogs? What what is it that trips your trigger?
1: I, I think, when, and especially this goes to to all bird hunting, and, and everybody has a preference uh, in in their sport, their bird, and a lot of it depends on their locality, where they live. If they live, you know, in, in the high plains. Uh, country of montana and in uh, that country uh, they they hunt tails and and huns but i grew up in an area here where our our bird was the rough grouse and we also during that period when i started had outstanding woodcock hunting uh in in the Canaan valley area so you know made made so famous by another west virginian george bird evans and uh so that's, that's where I started. And to me, I've had an opportunity to hunt all these birds with pointing dogs. I've hunted quail in the south and out in the Midwest, and I've hunted the pheasants, and I've hunted the uh, huns and the sharp tails and the prairie chickens. None of them are demanding, as demanding, on a good dog as it is a rough grouse. Why rough is... grouse has that, uh, I guess he has that... Uncanny ability to survive. He's, he's hard to handle, much harder than a quail or, or a woodcock, of course. Uh, and, and he will run, you know, he will run like a pheasant when he wants to. But having a dog and and developing a dog that can successfully handle rough grouse day in and day out has to me has always been the ultimate challenge. And I've had some good ones, and I've had some that never made it.
0: Well, yeah, but. So we all, <laughs> but you, yes. you hit on something that's uh, intriguing to me. And that is uh, what, so how did, you know, how do you develop a dog to handle this bird that use the term cagey? I think, uh, yes. you, you know, I would say unpredictable, uh, well, how do you train a dog for that?
1: Well, you, you start, you know, in, in this, these dogs, If you look back at the history, a lot of these outstanding grouse dogs came from up in New England where grouse hunting really got its start,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and those bloodlines were developed, and those dogs were developed hunting rough grouse. And as the grouse became more cagey, as we say, or more hard to handle, so so the dogs that were being developed uh, became smarter. So when we're looking, when I'm looking for a dog, and what I've done, I have— Raised, bred and and judged field trials for, oh, I don't know, back probably now 40 years, 35 years. So I've had an opportunity to see a lot of them. But what what I have always done is I start looking for a dog that has some real grouse dog experience in its pedigree.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And, And those, you know, there are certain things that are genetic that are bred into those dogs that you can't teach them. Uh, the the You know, we can teach a dog or train a dog to do a lot of things, but to be an outstanding grouse dog, he has to have some brains. And, and that's what I tell. Well, I, I tell people, they say, well, what's, you know, Frank, what's the first thing in training a, a, a grouse dog? Well, the first thing is you have to know more than the dog. And and, uh, what I mean by that, you have to know what you want him to do or what he should do or what you think, you know, your expectations are for him to be able to do. So you can train a dog to do a lot of things. You can make him staunch. You can make him hunt where you want him to hunt, uh, hunt with you. You You can do that. Two things you can't do is take a dog that won't get out and hunt and make him get out and hunt. And you can't. I've never been able to, and I don't know if anybody else has ever been able to, teach a dog to work a running grouse yeah that's where the intelligence comes in some dogs have it and some dogs don't some never never develop it and, and some of them on their own this genetic in, inbred tra- uh, you know track of whatever they have that's where it comes out and the more experience they have the naturally the, the better they get but you have to start with something genetically, uh, attuned but let me let me interject this. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a dog who was only trained on on grouse. One of the best and one of the first that I ever got was a, a two-year- old female that came out of southern Illinois that had never seen a grouse, had been trained on quail. and, and the owner told me he said this, this dog is an outstanding singles quail dog. Mm-hmm. I, I got I bought her. I lived in Elkins, West Virginia at the time, had access to good hunting in around the Canaan Valley area. The first day I took the dog out, the first thing, she pointed a grouse, first one she ever saw, and held it. I flushed it, shot it, she retrieved it. We went on two or three hundred yards. She did the same thing again. The second grouse she ever saw, I, I shot it, she retrieved it. I picked her up and went back to the truck because I was afraid something would happen to her. <laughs> I, I knew that you know here was something special. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's that innate thing that you really don't see, Scott, a lot of times. So what I'm saying is, good grouse dogs can come from from any breed or or anywhere as long as they have good bird dogs in their genetics, back. You know maybe. a a couple of generations Mm -hmm. we found over the years i have found that the grandparents of some of these dogs play seem to play an important role in in the development
0: well we we joke a lot about um blah 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 skipping a generation i mean Mm -hmm. you're saying if at least anecdotally empirically that may be true
1: well i've had dogs the best dogs that i've had uh, until here recently until the last dog I have that some people have seen this this dog we call Tiki. The dogs that we've had came from Grouse Ridge Will, the Setters, and the Pointers came from uh, uh, L. Hugh Magoo. And in those dogs, and if you look in the pedigrees of a lot of the good grouse dogs, you find those two dogs or or you know dogs from them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now we we have found that you know you you might People say, well, you know, the dog he might run too big. Well, it's like a racehorse. They breed a racehorse, so he will get out and run. And a field trial dog is bred the same way. But he has so many good characteristics that when you move a generation away from that, you may retain those good, you know, good genetics and those good traits of of drive and nose and brains, and and you may get away from that desire a little bit to just run out of the country or run like an open all age you know bird dog Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so there's a lot a lot of it is luck but you have to start with something you know that you have confidence in that there have been some good good grouse dogs back in that pedigree and and you know another thing i find people say all this breed is the best, you know, breed for a grouse dog, or that breed is the best breed for a grout dog, grouse dog. And when I hear them say that, to me, it shows me that there may be a, a little bit of a, a limit on their experience because there are and have been and will be good grouse dogs in, in every breed of dog. It, it's just getting that individual uh, that comes to the front yeah. and, and giving that exposure, see?
0: Got it. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, the host. That's our guest, honored guest, Frank Jezioro. You recognize that name. How can you forget a name like that, by the way? You've seen his byline in Pointing Dog Journal. He's got three books out. Uh, If you're in politics in the East, you probably recognize that name as well. But we're getting back to the important stuff. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, a dog handling a running grouse. And, you know, my first thought was, yeah, and there are guys, I know short hair guys in particular will tell me that their dog handles running pheasants the same way. They figure it out. I've never seen or heard or read anything about training a dog to head those birds off at the pass. You mentioned that it's kind of a natural, they learn it themselves. Am I right on that? Is that what you said?
1: I think think you're exactly right. I don't know of anybody that can train a dog to go on point and then take that dog and teach him to how close it can actually get before he flushes a grouse or teach him to... Push a pheasant to the point where the pheasant will hold in a little bit of cover. That is something that, and that's where the brains part come in. Some, mm-hmm. some figure it out, and some don't. I, a prime example of, of brains and, and you know, misbeliefs or whatever. There, there's a, a fellow near me here in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania. A, a noted, and a lot of the field trial people know him. And Roy Sisler is a is a well-known name in in training bird dogs. He, he has a hunting preserve now and still trains some dogs, but he has a, a world-class shooting preserve. But anyway, Roy was working. He had four or five dogs that he was working, and he had the uh, owners of the dogs watching. And he turned one one dog lease, and it made a beeline for a certain patch of cover and went on point. And, and he, had a, he had a bird planted in there, had a pigeon planted in a, in a launching trap. Dog did an excellent job, ran right out there and found it. Well, uh, when they let another guy's dog go, and he hunted around, hunted around, looked around, finally, finally came over to that certain place and, and pointed the bird. And the owner of that dog said, well, he said, I can see that the first dog you turned out, he just knew where you plant those birds, and he just went right there to that place and found it. And Roy told him, he said, well, you said, you're right. You know, some dogs know how to do it and figure it out and know where the birds are and know what the cover looks like, and some don't. And and he was right. Yeah, they, they can figure it out. They're smarter than what you give them credit for. And if they find a bird in a certain patch of cover or a certain looking patch of cover, a tangle or whatever, the smart ones will go there and look. And the ones that aren't as smart will look all over the country And before they go to that maybe that certain piece of what we would call ideal cover so there's some things you can teach them and some that they they learn on their own if they if they have the brains and and uh and, and they pick it up but you have to have a good prospect to start with
0: <laughs> yeah I, make it, you know I, i'm reminded of a um uh, i wish i could remember the whole joke i'm so bad at these things uh, somebody wanted to buy a, a labrador and the guy kept showing him, uh, you know, he would show him a bunch of Labrador puppies doing the same thing. Someday I'll remember it, everybody. I promise you. And when I do, I'll, uh, I will um, uh, tell the joke in the right way. I'll rehearse it. In fact, I'll remember to rehearse it as well. That's Frank Jezioro. I'm Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. Frank, put your feet up for a moment. Uh, I'm going to make a couple commercial announcements and you will be right back with us after these quick breaks. And don't forget, we also have the Upland Nation Glossary coming up, the letter T. You might be surprised at what I've selected there and maybe learned something. Plus, uh, some of your suggestions on what to do when that other guy's dog is just a little out of control. We're brought to you in part by SageAndBreaker.com. Always free shipping at SageAndBreaker.com come sign up for the mailing list you won't miss the sales like the most recent uh father's day sale now's the time to stock up on items that will keep your gun functioning throughout the upcoming season their clean lube and protect spray the firearms grease for certain aspects of your guns action And the bore cleaning kit, the the easiest way to keep your muzzle and all of the rest of your barrel clean in as thorough a manner as you need to. Learn more about what I'm talking about there at sageandbreaker.com. And you know, more dogs ride in a Roughland kennel than any other performance kennel. They pioneered it. It's no surprise to me. I've had one for years. Learn more about all of their products at roughlandkennels.com, R-U-F-F, roughlandkennels.com. And yes, while they've made some recent improvements to their technology and their manufacturing process, all the new kennels will nest, stack, and couple with the previous versions. I know this because I put my water topper on my new kennel. I put my Easy Rider top tray on my new kennel, and then they also go right on top, nestled right in there, in my old versions of the Roughland Kennel. Learn more at roughlandkennels.com. and frank jezioro probably drives around a lot with dogs in kennels frank welcome back to the upland nation podcast yes sir um do you do you do much traveling these days speaking of that sort of thing yes we uh
1: the last couple of years we continue we 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 got started uh Oh, in 1986, the the grouse population was down here, and we were looking for places to go, and I had always read about the great quail hunting out in Kansas back during that era, so we started hunting and have been hunting in in Kansas for quail, and, and uh, we hunt mostly in the, or more the Flint Hills country, uh, uh-huh. uh, particularly, I go mostly for the, uh, uh, quail out there not really interested in getting into a lot of pheasants when i go there but yeah we still hunt every year uh a friend of mine and i will take two weeks uh first around the middle of october and go up through the the lake states through michigan and wisconsin and maybe over into minnesota and and then usually go back again for another week right before their deer season uh in the first week in november so we hunt that area for grouse uh, and we hunt, uh, like I say, Kansas for for quail. Uh, haven't been back out to Montana for a while, but hunted out there for a long time in uh, northeast Montana around Plentywood.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: very good, very good sharp tails. And then North Dakota. Every you know, every chance we get, we get back out there. At, uh, there was some great hunting out there for pheasants and uh, and for sharp tails. So all all we can, but mostly. Uh, I'm still concentrating mostly on on the grouse hunting and then the woodcock are usually incidental to wherever the grouse are of course.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that you 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 know your woodcock population has kind of dropped a little bit. Do you have any guesses on that?
1: Yeah, it's it's uh you know it's along with the general decline of the woodcock population across the country. The, the loss of habitat, but there's been a general downtrend, as a lot of your listeners will know, who, who hunt woodcock. Uh, but we, several years ago, the, the who, who was the editor uh, uh, of Pointing Dog Journal, Steve Smith and I, and, and, and Jim Hamill, biologist from northern Michigan, the Upper Peninsula, started a, an organization called Woodcock Limited. And uh, just to put a little more emphasis on woodcock, and and then the year or two after that, we saw that the Rough Grouse Society sort of got more involved with woodcock. Mm-hmm. But it's it's that general decline. Uh, I don't know what, what's causing it, just range-wide. But here in West Virginia, back in the 60s, 70s, we had tremendous flights of woodcock, outstanding woodcock hunting. I mean, it was as good as anywhere... You, you could you know you could move 40 50 birds in an afternoon. The rough grouse have really declined all through the Appalachians, and and a lot of that is is due to habitat uh, growth. The the old timber is growing back up. Uh, the habitat has changed quite a bit, and uh, we're we're suffering a a decline. There are still pockets of you know birds, mostly in our higher elevations. Uh, there, there is some. Everybody has a, an idea or a, or a reason, some some thought that maybe West Nile has taken uh, disease has taken a toll on the birds. But I think the studies that are being done, mostly in in uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, have have sort of dispelled that theory that West Nile is having a devastating impact yes it may be killing a few birds or something but it doesn't seem to be the the overall reason why you might suffer a decline in 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 your grouse population
0: well you know you're right what I hear and read is um there's there's no one answer or one no once one problem to speak of uh West Nile is one of those uh, culprits that uh, some folks in the west will talk about when it, for example california pheasants uh right we're not seeing any research in that area but that's you know for another podcast down the road let's get back to dogs and and, and particularly grouse hunting because i'm intrigued with what, what how you define a good grouse dog
1: well <laughs> i've masked I've that a lot <clears throat> a good grouse dog let's let's put it this way you, you and you and your partner your buddy you're out hunting and you're hunting say in this country or even up in the lake states and you're hunting through a a big patch of cover and uh when you get to the end of it and you're stopping there, are talking about it and you you compare notes and you see that you moved 15 grouse and out of those 15 grouse the dog pointed 12 of them, maybe. One or two flushed wild, and maybe the other one you have no idea when it went out. Mm-hmm. Then, then you've got probably the makings of a good grouse dog. But if you go through that same cover and your dog points two or three grouse and runs over four or five, and and you and your buddy flush as many as the dog did, you don't. In my estimation, you don't have a grouse dog. When you hunt with a good grouse dog it's very seldom that you actually flush the grouse yourself. Now, you'll flush some. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But if, if you move 10 grouse, that dog has probably found eight of them yeah. because he has looked at every spot, every, every place where a grouse should or may be. I have, I have followed dogs in the snow. We hunt a lot in the snow back here, and I followed a good grouse dog. And every little bit of cover, as you're hunting along, as you know, when you, as you're walking you see a little patch over here or there that looks like where there might be a bird, you drift over there and walk beside it. Well, when you're hunting with a, a dog that really knows what he's doing, every time you get over there in the snow, you'll see that dog's footprints. He's been there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's already looked. And if he hasn't, and you go over there two or three different times and you flush a grouse and that dog's never been around there, then you've got a dog, probably, probably a good dog. If it satisfies you, it's a good dog. But as far as a, a top-notch grouse dog, uh, no, I, I don't classify him that. If I'm jumping and moving, flushing as many birds as the dog, then I don't think he's uh, doing his job.
0: So that's one deliverable, if you will. And, you know, having been in politics and and government, you know what I mean by that. Absolutely. So so what about some of the other things a dog, a good grouse dog should do? I get that one. And it's very obvious. (laughs) Right.
1: Well, the other thing is, of course, the dog should be hunting with you and not, you know, you should be dictating the hunt where you're going to go. Uh, and, and the dog is checking with you and following and hunting with you and in front of you, out to the side. I, I don't – It to me, it makes no sense for you. You hear people say, well, the dog, boy, he, he should quarter automatically. Well, if there's no cover over on the left or the right, why should he go over there and look? It, <laughs> and, and, I mean, it makes no sense. Sometimes the cover may be, you know, in one place or one side of the of the place where you're hunting on one side of the mountain. So just quartering back and forth doesn't make sense. The dog should run to the objectives where there, you know, where there appears that there might be a bird. Mm-hmm. So hunting, hunting to the cover hunting for you or you don't have, I've hunted with a couple of dogs that we've had where all day long, you may do nothing that whistle one time to let him know you're changing directions or, or you might say dead bird fetch. We, we had a, a couple of real outstanding pointers at one time that came directly out of LHU Magoo. And, and a fellow asked me, he said, Oh, how, how do you grouse something with a, a pointer? He said, they run clear out of the country. And obviously he, he'd never seen, you know, a lot of pointers, but he said, how do you handle a dog like that? And I simply whistled with my mouth. I went, I said, can you do that? He said, well, of course I said, well, that's how we handle that dog. Mm-hmm. And, because the dog was hunting for me and looking and checking on you all the time and not just running in a straight line or running out of, you know, out of hearing. The other thing is, of course, in a grouse dog, it, it kind of goes like following a running bird. The dog has to be extremely staunch, and he has to have that nose that at the first indication of scent, he freezes. You can't have him tiptoeing up on a bird. You can't you know have him getting too close to a bird. And, and those are things that, you know, you help reinforce when you're teaching him to be staunch. So being staunch on point until you find him, that, uh, that's a quality that, you know, we, we seek in all dogs, but especially in a grouse dog. And, and then hunting for you, hunting to the gun, of course, but hitting the, uh, all the likely objectives is extremely important. Uh, you're just, and a lot of this goes for, you know, for any bird dog. But, uh, maybe it's just has to be stronger in, in a grouse dog. You, you know, he can't just hit scent and then try to tiptoe closer to get a stronger smell,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: The, well, the bird's gone.
0: Okay. I'm going to be a little selfish and everybody knows one of my goals with my wire hair is exactly that. And we're getting closer to it in a whole bunch of ways. I'm training in various, using various methods to get him to hit that scent cone and And, and no, no, you can't rode in on that scent cone. It's right there. Stop. Do not pass. Go do not collect $200. You have any training advice for those of us who are trying to get that refined? Yeah. When
1: to, to make the dog, you know, extremely staunch watch, watch the dog. You can tell when the dog hits that scent cone that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. you'll see it snap around or whatever. Well, at that point, you have to be able to stop the dog to woe him. Yeah. And if he doesn't woe, if he does woe, you're 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 way ahead of the game. So when he when you do get him stopped, you can walk up to him and work him. Of course, pushing forward, uh, you know, don't push him out of his tracks, but lift his rear end up so he's mm-hmm. doing a handstand on his front legs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Twist him a little bit, 45 degrees, and drop him, and he'll he'll stand there. He'll stay on point. Do it lift him and drop him the other way and and the last resort when you when you get him good and staunch is to gently lift him up one hand under his chest one hand under his rear end and just sort of toss him forward i'm not talking about lifting him up three feet off the ground but just a few inches and toss him forward a few inches towards the bird now if the bird flushes you, you caution him and you woe him and tell him, you know, bad dog and move him back a little bit. That bird holds for him, which it will if you've got a planted bird there, of course. Mm-hmm. He will hit the ground on point. He gets to the place, then you, you want to stay behind the dog, down on your knees, where the dog can't see you. But he he knows you're there. If you see him starting to get nervous or maybe wanting you can watch and see if he's starting to take a step at that time, you tell him, whoa. So he knows you're there. Knows you're there. And handling. Dogs like to be handled when they're on point. They mm-hmm. they, you know, that's part of it. You you stroke him from the back, rub the hair the wrong way all the way to his forehead. And and that pushing it towards the fore just like pushing him for, you know from behind easy and telling him whoa at all times but let him stand there for two or three minutes yeah. then get up and flush the bird so that you're starting to instill in that dog the the idea that no matter how long he stands there you're going to find him and flush the bird
0: and you catch him when he's not standing still i, yes. I, I love that idea we, we we do that around the corner on a lot of walls and fences yes. for example Yeah, all those things are, are great reminders that yeah the the all-knowing all-seeing human will find out at some point i'm i'm taking distance and using it the same way i can hide behind any number of you know head high sage sagebrushes out here and so i'll watch him from a hiding place and and do that yeah those are great ideas and you know i'd never heard that before dog wants to be literally handled when he's on point
1: you know the the dogs that are you'll you'll feel them relax they enjoy that they enjoy it seems to be that they enjoy that handling that closeness uh now you'll you know you'll run into the individual that's extremely hyper and nervous but most of those dogs will never make a satisfactory bird dog mm-hmm. of any kind yeah. because if they're extra hyper or extra nervous, they're not, you know, they're not really comfortable. But once that dog gets comfortable and knows that what you're doing, that you're handling him and praising him all the time, telling him what a great dog is and, and rubbing that hair forward from his tail to his forehead, uh, and then just standing there behind him where he can't see you, Uh on your knee or something. And, you know, you'll even see him kind of turn their head to see if you're there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you, if you notice that little bit of excitement or like he's wanting to take a step and you woe him again, he knows you're there. Prolong that. And, and, and then he'll, he'll learn, he'll learn that eventually he can stand there for, you know, 40 minutes or whatever it takes. And and, and that you will eventually flush that bird and, and let him, do whatever it is retrieve it or stand there or whatever you want him to do
0: i'll settle for four minutes uh (laughs) that's frank Jezioro. you know him best as a columnist in pointing dog journal i'm scott linden hey my byline's in there once in a while too this is the upland nation podcast and uh uh, talking bird dogs and birds and and, you know frank i want to i just want to get to some more practical stuff but first if i recall um you picked up a new dog relatively recently, didn't you? Yes. I. I
1: seven years ago, I, I bought a, a, a male setter off of a, a friend of mine up in Washington, Pennsylvania, a, a fellow who has a good bloodline of, of setters. And uh, I, I, I made the mistake, and a lot of people do, I let the line of setters that we had die out because i waited too long to breed him and so i had to start over but i i knew i had a good prospect and he turned out this is a dog we call ticky and you've seen him in some of the articles
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh turned out to be just a i mean one of one of the best that we've had just a great great grouse dog so he he's seven years old and i told my wife uh, i was 79 in april so I said, you know, I think I need one more puppy and one more gun. And she looked at me, but being the, you know, the, the staunch agreeable great wife that I've had all these years, she said, well, go ahead and get one. And so I did. I, I went back to the same breeder and got a little female puppy uh, that I can breed to this male at seven years old, if she turns out to make a, a bird dog, I, I wouldn't, yeah won't breed them unless she shows what was sh- But anyway, took her took her up to the Lake States last year, seven months old. Uh, after I got her started here, and she was staunch from the day one. Wow. Because she had those genetics and those characteristics that were from those dogs behind her in her pedigree. Mm-hmm. And she uh, she's done everything we expected her to do at at seven at seven months old. She started now. You know she's not a She's not a grouse dog. She's pointed several grouse, uh, worked some birds, uh, shows all the characteristics that we're looking for. So I'll know after this year whether whether she may be uh, the dog that I want to breed to. But, again, we, we started with uh, some proven genetics, some dogs. You know, I, I had one out of this line that really made a, a, a good dog, this ticky dog. So we, we got the little female puppy, Daisy May, and uh, – very satisfied and you know and i'll go back to something i just said people ask me when when is the right time to start a bird dog well there's a lot of different opinions on that uh to me it's been when the dog lets you know that she's ready to start or mm-hmm. he's ready to start mm-hmm. they, you'll, you'll see him start to settle down or start to hunt you can tell when you take him out are they just running or are they hunting and and when they're hunting that's the time to to start them, and when you when you put them on birds the first few times, put them. We start them on pigeons. You you'll start to see those characteristics that you're looking for come out. That that strong nose, that uh, just what we were talking about earlier, that you can see him hit that scent cone from a mm-hmm. distance and not have mm-hmm. to tiptoe up. Uh, so yeah, so that dog she's 15 months old now, and uh, this this year will give me a good indication if uh, if she's going to make it
0: well good luck on that i hope it works for you that'll be great to learn about as well speaking of learning you know if you had to give us one bit of hunting advice uh, you've been around the block a few times uh uh what is the what is the thing that you almost always do when you're grouse hunting that we probably don't even think about doing
1: well it's probably a lot of your listeners do the same thing there's two or three things that as time goes on and hunting pressure, people recognize what grouse cover is or what bird cover is. So what's happening, everybody's hunting the same cover. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of people seem to give up. They'll, they'll hunt two or 300 yards from a two-track road or from, from something. They won't get back away. But what we have found, it, it, we have always seemed to find pockets of birds when we get back away from the road, from where people normally hunt. So <laughs> a guy told me years ago, he said, Frank, guns don't kill grouse. Legs kill grouse. And he, and he had a good point. You, mm-hmm. you have to get out and walk. In, in years of abundance, yeah, you can get on any two-track road and, and find birds, But when you walk those same two-track roads that everybody else does, and you're not finding them, get back away from it. Use use uh, you know we have such good instruments today in the little GPSs we carry that you're not concerned as much about getting lost. But get back away. Don't be afraid to get a half mile or a mile from the road. And and you, I've always found that you'll find birds.
0: That is uh, golden advice, and it's so true, isn't it?
1: One one other thing I'll I'll mention in passing that that often happens. You go to a place that you've never hunted before. Uh, one place, one instance I can tell you in particular that that got me started on this idea. A, a friend and I were hunting up in uh, Minnesota, and we'd been finding birds all week. There were birds there, grouse, and uh, we saw a piece of cover we hadn't hunted before. It looked just like the cover we'd been hunting, and we we'd found birds in. But it was raining. I don't like to hunt in the rain for grouse. I'll mm-hmm. hunt woodcock in a slight rain, but seems like grouse. I learned over the years were, and this kind of, started me learning what what was going on. So anyway, we hunted this particular piece of cover. It was a rainy day morning. wasn't just everything was wet. We were wet. So we go back to the car dry out, try another little place. And we kept thinking about why there were no birds there. It was ideal cover. There was food. There was cover. So about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the sun came out. It dried things off, and we went back through the exact same cover we had gone through and moved 8 or 10 grouse. And that got me to think, don't try a place that you don't have any experience with On a rainy day, because you may go through there and think there's never a grouse there. Mm -hmm. But on those rainy days, those birds seem to hide in the trees or under a log. They've been sitting there. The dog can pass them, never know they're there. They won't move. And and you may be leaving a good piece of hunting country simply because you didn't find any birds. But on on a rainy day, you may not find them and And then go back when when on a nice day and through the same piece of cover and, and find birds there. Well, they didn't migrate. They didn't move in and out. They were hiding there somewhere.
0: Yeah, I get it. I mean, who wants to sit
1: in the rain? Yes, yeah, that's and and when they when they sit there, Scott, and they don't and they don't move around, that scent cone, and you know, just sort of it, it just doesn't get out there like it does on a sunny, windy breezy day. Uh, or or a damp day uh, you know when you have those ideal setting conditions yeah and i'll, and I'll mention this uh, people we we hunt a lot in the snow and so do a lot of your readers going out in a in a day when you've got a dry powdery snow that just snowed three or four inches or whatever you may have terrible dog work but mm-hmm. you go back to that same place when that snow is just starting to melt and has that little bit of moisture in it and, and the dogs, for wh- whatever reason, it has to be sunny conditions, will have a, a, a great day pointing and finding and holding birds. So that, that powdery snow gives them trouble, but when that snow starts to melt and uh, get that moisture in it, it's, it's great setting conditions.
0: We could talk all day and we'll come back and do this again. Frank Jezioro, I'm Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. Let me leave with this if, if because I just got my new hunt ready vest. Um, I'm, I'm, re, I'm loading it with all the gear for this season just to make sure it all is in the right place. But to, if you were um, – what is a piece of gear that you take? Whether it's training gear, dog care, shooting, hunting, whatever kind of equipment – that you take that we may not have thought about taking?
1: Well, as I mentioned, uh, I, I carry a little Garmin yeah. uh, GPS with me That that because I do want to get back into strange <laughs> countries I've never been in and I want to get out. But yeah. I also carry a compass Yeah. because I don't want to get out there and push that button on that GPS and find out the batteries died.
0: Oh, man. So oh. I'll, I'll, get, you
1: know, I'll carry a compass, I'll carry that GPS, and then I've got a little kit uh, for the dog, yeah. it has uh, has that gel in it that stops bleeding.
2: Mm-hmm. It has a
1: little tourniquet in it, and just some things like that that uh, to take care of the dog. Uh, other than that, and the shells, mm-hmm. uh, that's about all I take with me. Uh, you know, like you say, other than your whistle or, or whatever you may need.
2: Yeah,
0: I remember a prototype Garmin back in the day when they were first trying to get into the hunting business. Took it out to Winnemucca in the hardest rainstorm I've ever experienced. And back then, they were so new. Nobody thought about how rain can literally stop a satellite signal. Right. I walked in circles for a while out there. Luckily, they figured out a lot. We did the the
1: same thing. We did the same thing, Scott, when he first came out. Didn't realize that if you were under heavy timber, heavy... mm. Heavy tree cover and mm. leaves were still on. Yeah, that <laughs> you better find an open spot somewhere where they where they could have a, a shot at the satellite. But they've come a long way now. They're uh, they're just in, indispensable for me uh, because of just what we're saying. To get away from the road and get away from everybody where they park, you will be amazed that the, their birds are back there because they move. If if the birds get flushed out of that cover. Every day, twice a day, uh, for a week, eventually they're going to move. They may move two or 300 yards, but they're back there.
2: Mm -hmm. And uh,
1: getting away from from those little two-track roads, if you're not finding them and you think you should be, then just take a reading and and get away
0: from it. Words to the wise from one of the wiser. That's Frank Jezioro. Frank? sure am glad i kept pushing you to be on the upland nation podcast i've enjoyed every minute of this and i'm confident that everybody else has as well hey if you didn't learn something today you weren't listening carefully frank a pleasure speaking with you thanks so much i hope you have a great season especially with your new pup daisy may and uh, you know just be safe out there and and see you down the road
1: same to you buddy I'm glad you uh, got a hold of me I hope the listeners enjoyed it I hope they learned something and uh, I sure enjoy talking to you
0: thanks so much take care now bye now and we've still got a little bit more here we're gonna cover the Upland Nation glossary on the letter T we're also gonna get a few of your thoughts on handling someone who brought a dog that maybe isn't as great as yours let's just put it that way be diplomatic about it but first I want to remind you that we are brought to you in part by the Ringneck Nation of Huron, South Dakota. I'll be there. See you in late October. You can be there too. 124,000 acres of public access. More birds than people. Everything from a ringneck festival and bird dog challenge to um, just some incredible public access—they want to help you. They welcome hunters in Huron, South Dakota. Get a free information pack with maps, discounts, all sorts of other good stuff at hunthuronsd.com. Hunthuronsd.com. And maybe you want to take a new gun when you're going to Huron or anywhere else. Uh, did you know midvalleyclays.com is your pipeline to some of the harder to find guns or maybe, you know, you just can't find the model you want locally? Go to midvalleyclays.com. They got a kind of a special relationship with a lot of the major manufacturers. Dave Fiedler is the operator at midvalleyclays.com and he's a champion sporting clay shooter and instructor and so he's got a line on the stuff that you may not be able to find elsewhere you want to take a look reach out to dave at midvalleyclays.com All right, in the Upland Nation Glossary, we're at the letter T. And if you have any more suggestions, uh, glad to have them. Just go to uh, one of the Facebook pages and we will be uh, adding to it as we continue to evolve. The whole list is at findbirdhuntingspots.com. In the letter T, I thought the one that might be fun and maybe less common to those of you who don't train professionally is trash all right we no i don't mean that i don't mean that i know you pick it all up but what i mean is the game that you don't want your dog chasing after in many parts of the country it's deer sometimes it's raccoons Uh, hopefully it's not skunks and uh, unfortunately here it's chipmunks trash the critters you want your dog to stay away from Thanks for all your suggestions over the years of assembling the Upland Nation Glossary. So I asked at the Facebook pages, someone else's dog is busting birds, running wild, fighting, generally spoiling a beautiful walk in the woods or prairies. So, hey man, how do you handle it? um greg shea says it happened with a young dog a friend bought um, dog kept coming in on his dog's points he tried going the other way uh, <laughs> his friend was off hunting with another dog didn't try to rein in this pup let him run finally i headed for the truck didn't run a dog when his dog was down for the rest of the trip and i get it probably in large part because you did have the rest of the trip coming understood. Tanya Schmidt says, know who you hunt or walk with. If you don't know the dog and how the owners work, I wouldn't be with them in the field. I get it. Yeah, absolutely. Brad Fleming says he runs three female draw He met a lot of out-of-control dogs. If the dog keeps its distance and it's uneventful, I just keep my crew away from them. An aggressive Brit, uh, His draughts, wow, maintained their downstay as the Brittany raised hell barking and snarling at his end of the lead. Oh man. Well, <laughs> Eventually, that Brit learned to fear the beard. You fight one of my draughts? You fight them all. OK. Well, I understand, and sometimes that might be the solution. Bruce Wundreck has a very diplomatic version. Take my dog, go home, or hunt somewhere else. Now, if they rode out there with you, you gotta address the matter tactfully. I un- I understand completely. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a matter of degrees. It always is, and it always will be. Great suggestions, uh, great guest. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Frank Jezioro, for bestowing some of your wisdom from seventy nine. years years of playing with dogs and writing books about it you want to learn more about frank uh, just go to any pointing dog journal issue and you'll have some of his wisdom right at hand if you comment at the social platforms when i ask questions uh, i sure appreciate that Uh, there's always something to learn and you teach me every day Thank you to our sponsors, Roughland Kennels, Sage and Breaker, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays, and Ringneck Nation of Huron, South Dakota. You are all great listeners. You are all great contributors. Uh, Until I see you again next week here at the podcast, maybe I'll see you on a trout stream. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for listening to the Upland Nation podcast.